So blessed to be in the house of God today, and what a wonderful place it is to be in God's house. There's just simply not a better place to be than to be in God's house. Uh, this actually is a continuing series that we've been dealing with here for several Bible study times. We are looking at the genetic Israelite heritage, and do we look at it as a novelty or as a lifestyle worthy of sacrifice? Now, I took the liberty of passing out a list of what I consider to be some of the sacrificial steps that identify those who may, at one time or another in their life, come into the knowledge and understanding of who Israel is in the Bible. So may God bless you if you took one of those sheets and you can just look at that uh, at your leisure. We may look at it here a little bit once in a while in this lesson. But we'd like this morning to begin by reminding this congregation of something that I think is quite important. You know, we live in a very tumultuous time of history. This is not an ordinary time that we're passing through, and I think everyone knows this. Beginning in March of 2020, the world, and America in particular, was introduced to a transitional time that has really gripped the world that we live in in ways that no one would have ever anticipated. And there's probably never been a time in your lifetime for, cer for certain or in the lifetime of anyone living in this country or the world that has ever experienced a more tumultuous time of adversity that has so completely absorbed the entire world. We've had great wars and and worldwide conflicts in many ways that have impacted tens and hundreds of millions of people. But the last two and a half years, beginning in March of 2020, have literally impacted every person living in the world. And that has really, I don't believe, ever occurred before the uh, pandemic, pandemic, or whatever you choose to call it, uh, was launched back in March of 2020. So the Bible tells us and reminds us that in a world of tumultuous, radical change and transition, God says in Psalm 46, Be still and know that I am God. We might take just a moment this morning to be real still and to ask his forgiveness wherein we, where we, wherein we may uh, need to make right, uh, things right with God or if we need to repent of any condition, let's just be still and know that God still rules and he listens for penitent, God-fearing men and women, boys and girls 
who love him and who truly are committed to his son, Jesus Christ. And Father in heaven, for on behalf of all those who are here today, in the holy name of Christ our blessed Savior, we are so grateful that we know Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that he came to this earth, he did suffer and bleed and endure great sadness and sorrow for our sins. He rose triumphantly from the dead of his own volition to demonstrate that he laid down his life willingly and he raised it up of his own power. And Father in heaven, we hold to our belief in Christ the Son of God as the sole blessing that makes our way before thee this morning perfect and right. And we thank you in the blessed name of Christ for making all things right for those who love you in this world. And we praise you in Christ's name, amen. Beloved, the Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter number 118, says something very significant. It says, come and let us reason together. That's a good statement. It's always good to reason and not let your emotional being dictate how you're going to live from day to day. If you follow your emotions, you might get yourself in trouble because the Bible tells us the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That is Jeremiah 17, 9. A lot of people don't like to hear that. But God says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. But when he says, come and let us reason together, this is separating reason from emotions. And emotional impulses can get us in trouble. But common reasoning in God's scripture will get us where we need to go. Isaiah says, come and let us reason together, saith the Lord Jehovah, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. What a contrast. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Seek ye the Lord Jehovah while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord our God and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. All those verses are from Isaiah, the great prophet of redemption, 
And as we open our Bible for this fourth lesson this morning, I would like to remind us of what the prophet Isaiah says about the Word of God. Now, you're all familiar with the fact that many, many Bible writers talk about the importance of God's Word. How important is the Holy Scripture to the children of God? I'd like you to consider what Isaiah the prophet says in his word. This I find a remarkable verse, and I'll tell you where it is in a moment. Isaiah says, Seek ye out of the book of the Lord Jehovah and read. So he's calling us to read from God's book. No one of these shall fail. None shall want her mate, for my mouth it hath declared it, and his spirit, Holy Spirit, hath gathered it together. Now that is Isaiah 34, 16. It's profoundly important because it says that God's book came out of the revelation of God himself, and his Holy Spirit gathered all these words together, and that's what the Bible is. It's a library, it is a compendium of all the things that God wants us as his children to know. So that's Isaiah 34, 16. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the Bible says, The grass withereth, you know this one, the flower fadeth, but the word of God shall stand forever. What a, what a testimony. Now think about that. The word of God shall stand forever. You know the Bible is older than the oldest building standing in the earth today. It's older than the pyramids, older than Stonehenge. It's older, it's older than the oldest stone monument of any kind standing in the earth today. The Bible precedes any nation, any empire that's standing on the earth today or has been standing. This is a marvelous book and we ought to really listen and know that within its pages there's a GPS to guide us through this world. The Bible is something like the manufacturer's handbook. Now, when you buy something that's complicated, you generally get a manufacturer's guide tells you what you need to know about that. Babies are not born knowing the Bible. That's why parents have to teach their children. They're not born into faith. They arrive in a fallen world and they are fallen little creatures. That's why babies scream when they need your attention. That's the first indication that while they look perfect and they look very innocent, because they have not actually committed sin of their own. They have the potential 
to be sinners without anyone teaching them. So we know that little babies do not become sinners because they sin. They sin one day because they are born sinners. For by one man, Adam, sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. Romans 5.12 And finally, the last verse that I'm going to read from Isaiah is chapter number 55, verse 11. This, this verse really, really is a real significant statement. Isaiah says, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It will not return unto me void. God says, His word will not return unto him void, but it shall accomplish which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. So we enter this lesson today, beloved, with the absolute assurance that God's word will not return unto him void and that somewhere in this congregation or to all the lovely, wonderful Israelites that may by accident stumble onto rumble and find us there, somebody or several, will be impacted not by what I say, but by what God's Word has said. And that is a powerful thought. That God's Word will not return unto him void. Do you believe that? If you believe it, let's open our Bibles this morning and let's continue the journey of our subject matter our genetic Israelite heritage. We launched this series by introducing the congregation to a number of credible books that were printed a long time ago. Now, I did bring, and these books would be available for anyone that would like to look at them at the end of our lesson. I brought the original copy of our Israelitish Origins, this is an original copy printed in 1840. Now that's a long time before the Civil War. That's in the age preceding the Civil War. So that goes back a long time. And John Wilson is one of the most early remarkable theologians who proclaimed this message in the British Isles. And we did a series out of this book back a number of years ago and we have four one-hour lessons on this book. And then I'd like to also show you a book that we have not talked about. And this is kind of a significant book. There was a Dr. Joseph Wild, who really was a very avid believer and a publisher, as well as a preacher of this message, and he preached all over the United States. Now, this was before the Internet, before, the, you know, before anything that we can uh, think about with regard to modern communication. But uh, this book is entitled The Lost Ten 
tribes. This book was written in 1883. That was post-Civil War, but that's going back a long ways in time. And then this book here is called The Lost Tribes of Israel. This was a well-read book back in its day, published in 1890, and was well-known across America. Now, what we have to know, people, is that at one point in time, the idea of the identification of biblical Israel was a proliferating message all across this country. In the, in the uh, 1920s, the 1930s, and the 1940s, there were literally tens of thousands of people across America that knew the message, and it flourished all over the country in what is called the Anglo-Saxon Federation chapters that were established all across the United States. Uh, I also have another book that I'd like to just mention here, and that is a book that is called, uh, it is actually by a professor who taught at Yale University. He published many books. His name is Professor uh, Mr. Uh, Totten, T-O-T-T-E-N, and uh, this book here is one of a series of books that he published. This one here was, was actually uh, printed back in uh, the 18, early 1890s, so it, it's well over 100 years old, but this professor uh, did he published a wealth of information. So there was a world of information. And uh, one of those uh, that I'd like to mention here today of publications, here's one that was published way back in the days of Henry Ford Sr. This is a, a 1919 publication. And I hold an edition called it's the, this is the Jan, January edition of The Watchman in Israel. So it goes back to 1919, and I thought that it was very interesting because the leading article is the famous Stone of Jacob, and it goes all, it's got an article on spiritual Israel. Now, it would be well for every preacher to have read what they were teaching about spiritual Israel back in 1919, and spiritual Israel for them back in 1919 was a natural-born Israelite who became a spiritual Israelite when he found Jesus, Christ the Son of God. That's how you became a spiritual Israelite. That's 1919 version, and that radically is, has been altered in 19 in 2023 here in this country, I will assure you. It's no longer um, looked at in that sense. I'd also like to introduce a rather significant volume of, book, of, of magazines that were published in this country called The Banner of Israel. Now this is volume number one for the year 
1881. So it's, it's uh, volume number one, and it was published in uh, 1881. This uh, contains all six editions, and then I have volume two, which completes that year of 1881, and it's, it's just got all kinds of significant information. It's called The Banner of Israel, published in this country and sent all over the, the country. So I just, I wanted to emphasize that particularly for the younger people, that while it may appear today that the Israel belief is a, is a very, very minority position held by people, which is true, it hasn't always been that way, but it is, of course, that way today in many respects. Now, I have only scratched the surface believe you me, of the historical evidence that can be marshaled together in support of this truth. Today we are going to just take and dip our toe into what some people believe to be the magnus opus place in Scripture to defend the genetic Israelite heritage information. So if you will turn to that chapter we're going to go to what is called the premier chapter in the Bible. Now that's saying a lot because there's a world of, of, of truth in the Bible from uh, Genesis 12:1 to the end of the Revelation letter on the subject of Israel. But I promise you that Romans chapter 9, the chapter where we're going to be camped out today, uh, we're going to pitch camp here at Romans 9, I don't know how long uh, that we will camp out here. We're not going to go to anywhere else this morning. In particular, we'll stay pretty much right here. And so uh, thank you, young people, for helping to uh, make camp here out of Romans 9. And let's see where this goes. Now, we're going to read into the record from Romans 9, verses 1 through 4. And that will secure the initial stage of our camp out here in Romans 9. Can we join together now in the Word of God by turning to Romans 9, verses 1 through 4, and we'll read this together. So I want to thank the, the boys and girls. Uh, boys and girls, I, I really do want to thank you because we're reading from God's Word. And... If you learn how to read and think and grow from God's Word, it's going to bless you every day of your life. So let's read together. Romans 9, beginning in 1, St. Paul, the writer says, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law 
and the servants of God and the promises, and one more verse, whose are the fathers, and of whom as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God bless forever, amen. Now, these thoughts are not my thoughts at all, but it has been stated by some of the most serious Bible students and scholars of the Israel truth that Romans 9 is the premier chapter in the Bible to undertake for people that want to understand what Israel means in Scripture. So here it is. Now we start out here that St. Paul is testifying and he says, he says something significant. He says, I say the truth in Christ. He's testifying to the very idea that in Christ's name, this is what I believe. This is what I feel. So he's placing Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, at the pinnacle of his belief system. He knows that to truly believe in Jesus Christ the Son of God means that we have a heart that is fully surrendered to Christ, a heart that loves God and His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, My conscience is born on the wings of the Holy Spirit, which gives and bears witness of the truth that I'm ready to tell you. He says, I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. Now, you know, that's something that I'm not sure that, I don't know how sincere we all are in having a heart that wants to share Bible truth. The greatest way that the truth of God is shared in an unbelieving world is by the word of your testimony to another person. The greatest way to spread the truth of the gospel is each one teach one. That is better than evangelism. That's the greatest key to evangelism. Each one teaching one because each one is becoming a qualified teacher as you communicate truth to another person. And there are a multiplicity of ways that everyone can somehow lead somebody else into the truth. Paul says, I wish that I could be a, 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 a curse from Christ. Now, you know, think of what he's saying here. He's saying, I would rather stand accursed before Jesus Christ if it meant that my kinsmen, my brethren could find their way to Christ. He would be willing to sacrifice himself if only those of his own people would come to the knowledge of the truth. What a compassion 
St. Paul was truly one of the most zealous people that ever lived. And that's why he's the author of half of the New Testament scriptures. So let's see now in verse 4. I'd like you to look at verse 4. It's the most singular compact verse in the Bible on the heritage of Israel. Who are Israelites? Here it is. This is, this, this is God telling us what it means. Who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption? Now that's interesting, beloved, because you know, without me telling you, that the typical interpretation of the word adoption, if you were to become a theologian, and enroll in any theological school in the world. They're going to teach you that the adoption is applicable to everyone in the world, has nothing to do with literal Israel. The Bible says adoption applies to Israel. It applies and it's applicable to that great body of Israelites that were cut off, you know their history. God's cut them off. He divorced ten tribes, sent them into the Assyrian wilderness, into the great dispersion. And their reconciliation much later back to the faith of their fathers is the great adoption. It's all contained in Romans chapter 11 because these people became known as the wild olive tree that came back and were grafted back through adoption into the natural tree out of which they were uh, taken. So who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory? Now you're all familiar in the Old Testament with the fact that when Moses constructed with the help of many people the tabernacle in the wilderness, that the glory of, of God, it's sometimes called the Shekinah glory, filled the tabernacle. It just overcame everybody that was there. The very glory and presence of God. And the, and the Bible tells us that that was all part of the heritage of Israel, and we can confirm that in a multiplicity of witnesses in the Bible. And then it goes on to say that also to Israel belonged all the covenants. Covenants is plural. So all the covenants that you can name. You could begin with the Edenic covenant that was given to Adam and Eve. You could start with the conditional covenant given to fallen man and Adam and Eve and their posterity in Genesis chapter 3. Or you could go to the Noahic covenant given to Noah. How about the Abrahamic covenant of redemption that was for all of the descendants of Abraham that was applicable to Abraham and his seed through Isaac. So all the covenants, the Davidic covenant, the Levitical covenant, and the new covenant hold everything now God promised the new covenant, New Testament. Jeremiah 31, 31, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will make 
a new covenant with who? The house of Israel, the house of Judah. We will turn to the New Testament, book of Hebrews, chapter number 8, reaffirming that God made a new covenant with Israel and with Judah. Now, by what scriptural authority, hello, by what scriptural authority, where can I turn to in the Bible where God changed his mind and said, I'm going to now make the new covenant with everyone under heaven? It isn't anywhere in the Bible. I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And so then we have not only the covenants, but we have the law, the giving of the commandments, statutes, and judgments given to Israel, the service of God. That is divine worship. That's the order of divine worship that you can read about in the book of Hebrews chapter 9. You might want to read Exodus chapters 24 to the end of that book. Lays out the service of worship. And finally, the promises. How many promises are there in Scripture that are applicable to Israel? Just endless promises. And finally, in verse 5, there is a powerful statement, whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh, Christ came. To whom be glory forever and ever. God bless forever and ever. Amen. Now, if Jesus came as the Redeemer of His people, Romans 9, 4 would be a challenge to any Bible student to look at closely and see how it impacts the total view of all Scripture. But let's move on to the next series of statements. Let's read now from verse 6 through verse 8. Can we do that together? Boys and girls, are you ready? I'm in Romans 9, beginning in verse 6. So we'll read this thoughtfully. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of Israel, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. Now, those verses are not difficult to understand, but they have presented a tremendous roadblock for millions and millions of Bible-believing people throughout history. So let's look at it. If you look at verse 6, St. Paul says, Not as though the word of God had taken none effect. He's, he's telling us here something very significant. For not everyone of Israel is of Israel. Now that sounds like a very complex idea. 
But let me ask you this. Some of you people are good Bible students. Can you name twins that were born to Isaac and Rebecca? Twin boys. Isaac was their father and Rebecca was their mother. What was their names? Jacob and Esau. They, and Jacob was the first person in the Bible to actually wear the name Israel. So his children were the first bona fide, generic, genetic Israelites. And yet, the scripture here is saying, they're not all Israel, which are of Israel. Because we know that Esau, number one, sold his birthright. What else did Esau do? He violated the law of genetics. He walked away from his kinsmen, his own kind, and found forbidden wives from another people that God had condemned. Esau then was rejected, yet he was an Israelite. They are not all Israel which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. The Bible tells us in verse 7. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. You need to underline that little statement, in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is repeated in Genesis 21, verse 12. It is again repeated in Hebrews 11 and verse 18, I believe it is. In Isaac shall thy seed be called. Abraham's the father of how many sons? Father of eight sons. Eight sons. Only one of the sons born to Abraham, sired by him as their father, is going to be counted for the promised seed. And that will not be Ishmael, born to Hagar, and it will not be this, any one of the six sons born to the third woman that Abraham was married to, that was Keturah. So seven of the eight sons of Abraham did not count as the seed of promise. Now you'll remember going way back into Genesis that God promised Abraham and Sarah that they would become the, the parents of a son born from Sarah. That was the promise God made. And that is the reason that Isaac is called the seed of promise, the child of promise. Ishmael was not part of that promise, nor were any of the six sons of Keturah. Now it is true that all of Abraham's seed became prominent in the earth. In fact, the Arab world 
that occupy much of the desert of Central Asia are the seed of Abraham. But they're not the covenant line of the promised seed. Never have been, and, not, and they never will be. Why is that true? Because God has said that in Scripture. So then we look at the six sons of Keturah. We know that at the end of Abraham's life, he blessed them with all kinds of gifts and sent them into the east country where they became a very prominent, dominant people in subsequent history. And their history is well-charted, well-known. You may know something of them if you have followed the, the uh, trajectory of, of those six sons in history, and that is quite a study in and of itself. But notice what God tells us in verse number 8. He says, that is, they which are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God. That's what God says. That the children born to various ladies while they were married to Abraham, those are the children of the flesh, not counted for the seed. But the children of the promise, verse number 8, are counted for the seed. Now that had not to be too difficult for people to handle. So what is the problem? Why the difficulty here? How many know that this is causes great difficulty for people. It really does. It's the unwillingness of people to yield human intellect to the Word of God. It takes humility and meekness to read the Bible and let the Bible humiliate your intellect. See, the Bible will insult human opinion. And that, that should not occasion any great difficulty if our heart is right. If we are willing to submit to the authority of Scripture, God will do supernatural things in your walk through this world. And so God says that only the seed of Isaac will be counted for the seed. He says it three times for emphasis in the Bible that in Isaac shall the seed be called. Now, if you will sometime check this out, you will find this to be a remarkable truth. The word promise attached to the seed of Isaac as the children of promise is a marvelous theme in the Bible to follow. Follow the children of the promise. Let me give you a good example. On the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter number 2, first Pentecost celebrated by Israel after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Saint, uh, Saint, uh, the apostle Peter is the speaker. 
And he says in Acts chapter number 2, he says something in reference to the promise. So what does he say? Let me turn to Acts chapter number 2 and review that with you if you will let me. I'm in Acts chapter chapter number 2 and I'm reading now and this is Acts 2 verse 38 uh, verse 37. Now when they heard this this is Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. I'm in Acts 2 37. They were pricked in their hearts and they said unto Peter and the rest to the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? These people were very moved by the, the sermon delivered by the apostle Peter. So I want to read this and see what, what Peter had said. So I'm in Acts 2 and this is what scripture says. Peter said unto them, repent Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of sins, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise, here's that word promise, for the promise is to you and to your children and to all that are afar off, that's Israel and dispersion, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Notice, as many as the Lord our God has called. Has he promised to call everyone? The gospel, the gospel has never anywhere converted all, but everywhere has called out some. And that is still occurring in our world today. So the promise that God made to Abraham has a far-reaching application in the Bible. But let's go back to Romans chapter 9 and review something that's significant now. And we're back to Romans 9 again. Verse 9. Well, this is the promise. What was the promise? At this time will I come and Sarah shall have a son. Not Hagar, not Keturah, but Sarah. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by Isaac, had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, now we want to view uh, Rebecca now, is with child. She is going to deliver a child, but she finds out she's carrying twins. Notice, we are in some very tough biblical territory now. Verse 11. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him that calleth. That is probably one of the most significant statements in the Bible. And 
on the authority of one of the leading Bible teachers, now deceased in this country, but of the United States. He said that Romans 9-11 will cause or should cause every theologian to stop dead and start reflecting on the meaning of that verse. Neither Esau or Jacob had been born. They're in the womb of their mother, Rebekah. The mother is undergoing tremendous travail. You've read the story in Genesis 25. The travail was great enough that Rebekah got on her knees and prayed that God would tell her what was going on within her womb. I have no idea what Rebekah must have been undergoing, but God spoke to Rebekah as recorded in Genesis 25, and he said, two manner of people are in your womb. Two different kinds of people are going to be born from your womb. Now, both, both are going to be Israelites, but they're not all of Israel which are of Israel. Now, that's, I know that's a mystery, but it has to do with God's electing decree. What we have to do as Christians is to back off and know that God does what God pleases. I struggled for a long time with Psalm 115, verse 3, which simply says, But our God is in the heavens, and He does whatsoever He pleases. Does that bother you? God is in the heavens and he does whatsoever he pleases. He doesn't have to answer to anyone. He doesn't owe us anything. But we owe him a lot. But he says, I'm going to do what I please. Psalm 135, verse 6, he says, Whatsoever the Lord Jehovah God did, that does. That did he in the heavens and in the earth and in the seas and in all deep places. God does whatever he chooses to do. And before Esau and Jacob were born from the womb, God decreed by election, which is another word for choice, God made a choice. Rebecca didn't make the choice. Isaac didn't make the choice. God made the choice. Remember what the Bible says? John 15, verse 16. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. That's every one of us. There's not one person here this morning that chose Jesus. You have not chosen me, Jesus himself said, John 15, 16, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So God made this choice and he says, before these children were even born 
to have done anything good or evil. The purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, Rebekah, what God told Rebekah, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. There's a lot of people who will struggle with that verse. How could God possibly say that one child I loved, not because he was good, not because he deserved it, but God loved Jacob before he was born from the womb. And someday, faith will guide you to understand what God was thinking about when he made that choice. Because at some point in time, all of us see through a glass darkly today, but someday we will see through the glass clearly. Right now, we walk by faith. And if we could walk by sight or by understanding, it would no longer be faith. You, is, that, is that correct? Faith is to walk and believe, not because you understand it, but because you trust in the Word of God. You believe God, you trust in Him. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, God's purpose, see, God is saying, submit to my purpose, according to the election might stand not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. That's found in Malachi chapter number 1. And you know the Bible records the end of Esau. Esau and his descendants are not going to be in the kingdom of God. You can read about it in the book of Obadiah. You can read about it in the book of Ezekiel or Jeremiah or Isaiah. These prophets all testify to the sad end of Esau's children. It might interest you to know that the descendants of Esau are very active in the earth today. Can I tell you who one of the descendants of Esau might be? I will not give you his name, but he's the head of the World Economic Forum. So if you know who that is, you know one of Esau's descendants today. And they occupy very significant places in the earth. Now, verse 14, look down at your Bible. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? St. Paul says, because God made a choice. God made a choice in election Without consulting anyone, God made the choice. 
is their unrighteousness with God. Let See, St. Paul is making a defense of God in the choice of Jacob and the rejection of Esau. St. Paul is the defender of God here. Is there unrighteousness with God for the choice he made? And what does St. Paul say? Verse 15, For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth. It's not of him that wills to be a Christian, not of him that runs to be a Christian, but of God that shows mercy. Beloved, without the love and mercy and grace of God, none of us would be here today. We are the recipients of God's grace. And what is grace by definition? It is the divine favor of God shown to ill-deserving people. And all of us are ill-deserving, and that's why we are saved by grace, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, Ephesians 2, verse 8. So back to Romans 9. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Verse 17, For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, You remember reading this out of the book of Exodus. Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power on thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. And everyone who has read the book of Exodus know that God turned Pharaoh's heart into a stone, a flint. Pharaoh was unmoved. He would not let Israel go at the time of the Exodus. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Come on. God hardened his heart to the end that Israel would leave Egypt and move forward with his plan of redemption. Verse 18, therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and on whom he will he hardeneth. Now, congregation, I humbly acknowledge that those are hard verses, and I understand why millions of people over the ages have rejected the message of Scripture, the hard message. It's understandable why many people simply cannot make the trip. So God says here, and I'm about ready to end this lesson, therefore will he have mercy on whom he will have mercy, on whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but O man, beautiful statement by St. Paul, who art thou that replies against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? 
Do any of us have the right to say, God, why, before two children are born from the womb, why would you choose one and reject the other? And St. Paul says, verse 21, one of the hardest verses in the Bible. Hath not the potter power over the what? The clay. To make one lump of, to, of the same lump, to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor. Now, we're only talking about Israel right here, folks. Am I correct? We're not talking about a lot of people. We're talking about the people of this chapter. That God is able of taking one lump from the clay the family of Esau and Rebekah and making it unto honor and of the same lump to make one unto dishonor. In the reading earlier today, we read from Numbers chapter 16. One of the primary leaders in the family of Aaron, the name is Korah, went down into the pit. Korah was a bona fide pedigreed Israelite that went down to the pit for his rebellious action in Numbers chapter 16. And there are multiple examples of this from the same lump, vessels of honor, and vessels of dishonor. So today in closing, church, we will end at verse 21, Romans 9, 21, and we will see if at some future time we continue here. That will remain to be seen. But these verses remind us that we are carriers of a great heritage that those who have been brought to a knowledge of Romans 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 8 of Romans, classic chapters in the Bible, together with the remainder of the Bible, form an incredible storehouse of Bible truth worthy of your devotion and your dedication, and your sacrifice, let us be standing. You will be crowned with praises, Lord, the sign, exalted